My name is Jeremiah, and I am here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Stephen. And we're going to be talking about the 1942 film, The Magnificent Ambersons, directed by Orson Welles. But first, let's introduce ourselves. Mia, other than The Magnificent Ambersons, have you watched any movies since we last recorded? And this will probably mostly be my answer, too. <laughs> so I'll just chime in with Yeah. That. So since we're going to have the same answers, I'm just going to talk about one. Um, so we watched uh, Romeo and Juliet, the 1996 Leo one. Um, and it was so good. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it in a really, really long time. And I loved that movie when I was younger. And Jeremiah had never seen it. So it was just such a psychedelic, intense, crazy treat. Was that what we watched and then the power went out? It was that night, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, we wa- we, <laughs> we recorded our episode about Passion of Joan of Arc, then we watched that movie, then the power went out. Yeah. It's kind <laughs> of foreboding. Flying. The Shakespearean yeah. tragedy that then right. yeah. yeah, very much so. Um, but it was so good. I felt like it totally held up. I can't move that movie came out, what, 20 five years ago like that's crazy i feel so old right now but um yeah it was so good if you haven't rewatched it in a while i highly recommend i have and i have a different take Ooh, but i i mean i thought you know honestly i thought everyone did such a great job except claire danes wasn't quite sure what to do i thought she was so beautiful it just seems like she she kept going to the cry mode in every scene and I think she's super talented and I'm a big fan, but I just thought she kind of played it one note, whereas Leo had all these different levels and there was just amazing. <laughs> Tybalt was like ridiculously fast, multifaceted and like I've never seen before, but, and visually it was incredible, but I was disappointed with Claire. I liked it a lot more than I ever thought I would. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was like the best movie I've ever seen, but I, I thought it was entertaining. And it somehow is both like the most 90s and the most timeless movie ever. I don't yeah. understand how they did that. I completely disagree <laughs> with you, Laura, though. Like I thought Claire Danes acted circles around Leo. Interesting. I, I, yeah, Ooh, I thought she was so ew. much more believable. <laughs> I, it's just there was just something about Leonardo DiCaprio's performance that I just didn't believe almost the entire time it was just like this kid playing dress up in a way they didn't have I, chemistry so i i do yeah, think there is that maybe i get what you're saying though yeah. it's interesting but i really like the opposition it's kind of fun. right <laughs> <laughs> was that baz lerman yeah. yeah awesome absolutely my high school friends and i were all so into milan rouge we would like drive around and blast the soundtrack and stuff so wow. that is so that, like, cute yeah no we would like oh my god um i so so, wish i was in the car with you guys (laughs) (laughs) but yes i've seen that movie a whole bunch of times love it but i haven't seen i never saw the great gatsby and then australia strictly australia strictly ballroom which looks strictly ballroom or strictly ballroom it's like my all-time favorite sentimental favorite like i can watch it it. any day anytime it always puts me in a good mood i love this amazing film I think I had not realized that Lerman had only made five movies. And it's kind of yeah, crazy. Such a presence, yeah. Yeah. yeah, now I've seen three of them because uh, I saw Australia and I saw Moulin Rouge. Australia is a batshit movie that makes no <laughs> sense. It's like five different movies all crammed into one. It's so bizarre. 
I will not be rewatching that one. If you oh, I'm definitely, it. I'm going for, you know, complete. And it's only five movies. So yeah. you I'm, actually you made me want to watch it by me saying too. that. Actually. I know. Yeah. We watched a preview. <laughs> and because once we finished Romeo and Juliet, we were like, we're like, what other movies? Oh, we should watch more, you know, and watching a preview for Australia. Yeah. It's like a war movie. It's Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman in Australia. There's like some class issue between them, but they're in love. There's like aber- they adopt an Aboriginal child, maybe. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, it just looks Ooh. insane. Yeah, probably insane and probably insanely problematic in yeah, many yeah. ways, isn't it? It's it's a weird one. Yeah. Um, but uh, we also watched Minari and Nomadland together, um, which both I think we both liked both of those. Yeah, they're great. Um, Nomadland is like the best movie I've seen in a while, uh, like new movie wise, um, and one of the best just overall that I've seen in a while. It's so good. And and it's on Hulu, so it's easy to watch for most people, I think, who, who at least have Hulu. Um, so I highly recommend that. And I finally got around to re-watching slash finishing One Night in Miami. And I thought it was really good. <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of crazy how good uh, an adaptation of a play can be if you just like do all the filmmaking very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it's funny how that works, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Steven, what about you? What have you watched since the last time we recorded? Um, it's kind of a record for me because I watched actually four other movies, which I'm not usually one to watch a lot of movies. So um, aside from doing this podcast, it makes me feel like, oh, I should watch more. So um, I watched, I married a witch, which was kind of interesting. It was made in 1942. And because Agnes Moorhead was in this movie, The Ambersons, mm-hmm. and she actually plays Andorra in bewitched it made me think like oh well maybe i should watch you know this is what it was based off of i married a witch was uh the inspiration for bewitched and that was also made in 1942 um which is the same year that the magnificent ambersons came out so i kind of wanted to see what filmmaking might have looked like with a movie that was more mainstream so i really enjoyed it it was a very short movie it was only like an hour and 20 minutes it seemed like a lot of those movies of that era might have been short i don't know um but yeah it was enjoyable it was fun um, I also saw American Hustle, which I hadn't seen before, and that mm. was in 2013. Um, and you, everybody probably has seen it by now, but I enjoyed it for the most part, but I thought that Jennifer Lawrence was a little bit too young for that role. I mean, she mm-hmm. did a good job, but like she wasn't completely believable as like a seasoned, like really erratic housewife. They I did think. that in so many other movies, like Jennifer Lawrence's Joy, like this like mm-hmm. 50-year-old woman who invented the mop the miracle you know there was like a time where just they kept trying to fit her into everything because she was just so dynamic and beautiful yeah yeah she i felt like she was miscast out of everybody in that movie she did a great job with what she was given but it just didn't it, it didn't sell it all the way through for me um and i also saw this movie called sparkle that was made in 1976 it was um an african american cast and it was kind of based on the sounds of the 50s and the 60s, it was about this girl group. And it was starring Irene Cara and um, Philip Michael Thomas, who was in um, Miami Vice. Miami Vice, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> so it was, it was a really good movie. Um, it was interesting because Irene Cara ended up being the big star of that movie, even though I felt like she was understated in that one. Who is that? Uh, Irene Cara, sure fame. Yeah. Fame. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. What a feeling. Um, but yeah, she, that was where she made her big splash and that was years later, I believe. And then the last movie I saw was Easy A, which I think everybody's seen at this point. And I, it was one of those movies that I always felt like I wanted to get around to watching and I never did. And so it was just kind of a fun, like romp kind of movie. And I like Emma Stone a lot and it was just kind of a, a nice movie to watch on a Sunday night. So I actually haven't seen that, but oh, I heard haven't? it's so yeah. funny. Yeah. People yeah. love it. Yeah. The Tooch. 
<laughs> oh, he's in it? Yeah, he plays her dad. Oh, right? I love the tooch. Her yeah. very understanding father. They have some oh. really, like, you know, like Patricia Clarkson's in it, too. Mm-hmm. Which oh. I was like, wow, she's in this movie, but she was great. Like, I really like the family dynamics. It was very theatrical, though. Like, I didn't feel like they were a real family, but it was like a real, like, movie family. Because they were just very understanding, like, cool parents. Um, but yeah, it was a good movie. I enjoyed it. I've always, for some reason, put that in the same category as was it House Bunny that Anna Faris starred in, uh-huh. which is such a great movie. It's yeah, people. I was so like, this movie looks fun. so dumb, so whatever. But people love it. I've never seen it either, but I just feel like so these underrated. Are... Love yeah. every it's bit actually, of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's one of those movies that's better than you think it's going to be. When you watch it, you're sort of, especially if you're going cold, you're just yeah. sort of like, you know, I like this a lot more than I expected to. Loved it. I agree. <laughs> And, uh, that was that was my week. Alicia, how about you? <laughs> um, I also watched One Night in Miami um, and really enjoyed it. And I didn't know going in that um, that Regina King had directed it. So I was very pleasantly surprised by that. She's great. Um, the movie was great. And also didn't know that it was a play beforehand either. So I really didn't know that much about it going in. But, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was really thought provoking. And the acting was just amazing it was so good um the guy that played Muhammad Ali I thought was really great I started Nomadland as well but we couldn't quite finish it um it was like at night and my mom was falling asleep and I was kind of not really in the (laughs) mindset for what it is (laughs) so I'll have to come back to that at some point but um but I mean Francis McDormand is always watchable um and entertaining so um so yeah, I'll get back to it. But that's about it. Otherwise, just yeah, out of masterpiece mystery mm-hmm. and 2020 at this house. <laughs> and... But I'll be back in New York uh, to tomorrow. So next episode, I'll have watched a much more uh, interesting and thought-provoking movies that we can discuss. <laughs> <laughs> it's warming up over here. Is it? Yeah. I'm good because I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And very hot here so <laughs> laura how about you what have you been watching um i watched the happiest season or happiest season um there's no the the clea duval lgbtq um christmas movie oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. yes i watched it in february and <laughs> i really enjoyed it it was it hit all the right notes it was it wasn't i mean it was groundbreaking in the sense that obviously the the big you know reason of it but then it just it gave you everything you needed in terms of a christmas movie and it also has one of the best lines i've i think i've seen in a a film in a really long time and i don't know if it's appropriate to say or not say but dan levy says it in the movie and it's just i think really smart so yeah it's predictable and it has the perfect amount of cheese element for a christmas movie but it's it was really smart and really enjoyable i liked it i saw that back in december i also really enjoyed it i thought it was really funny and sweet and it actually went i was there was actually a moment where even though i knew i was watching a rom-com where i was kind of like this relationship might not work out i know, <laughs> I don't know why. that's the thing <laughs> i was reading for actually a different relationship in oh, the no. film like i don't know if you've seen the film wow. but there's a subplot yeah, with spoilers. Aubrey Plaza. She was just so likable and cool that I was mm-hmm. just like, 
this bitch. Like I totally want to date her, you know, and, (laughs) but I was happy with it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So for those who may not have heard our first couple of episodes, this is a podcast where the five of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made. And that poll comes out every 10 years. The next one will be out in 2022. So we're using it as a prompt to watch some classic movies in advance of that. We invite listeners to take part in the discussions by watching along and sharing their opinions in our Facebook group, by emailing, or by leaving a voice message on our Anchor show page. And again, this time we're talking about The Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, But before we get into the history and background of the movie, I'm just curious, what did each of us know about the movie going into this viewing? Who's seen it before or what were you expecting, if anything? And Steven, since you picked this movie, why don't you start us off and also tell us why you picked it? I picked the Magnificent Ambersons because, um, first of all, it's funny because my last name is Anderson. So people used to call us the Magnificent Andersons when I was a kid. Um, so I, I immediately picked up on that. And also because I had seen Citizen Kane and that was the only movie that I'd seen that was directed by Orson Welles. So I was curious to see how, you know, his filmmaking might've changed within that year. I think uh, it wasn't Citizen Kane made in 1941 and this is from 1942. Right. Um, and I had seen Citizen Kane in college. So I, I would have rewatched it, but knowing that we're going to be watching it later for the podcast, I decided not to do that. Um, So I kind of walked into it thinking that it was going to be kind of like this big family drama epic that spanned the generations, because I I usually try to go into movies cold without knowing too much about it. So I just did watch the trailer and that was it. So I pretty much walked into it cold. um, And that's where I was when I picked it up. Okay, and Alicia, how about you? Um, So I I also knew that it was an Orson Welles film um, and that I also knew that there had been a fiasco between him and the studio and that it had been um, recut. I didn't know the extent of it, um, but I definitely knew that there was some sort of controversy, um, or at least that he felt there was some controversy in his life about, about how it went down. Um, and that's pretty much all I knew. Um, I also was sort of expecting the same type of things you had mentioned, like a multi-generational, like family epic saga, and um, I always, I mentioned it on the Facebook page, but I always confused it with this other um, movie called The Foresight Saga, which is like a miniseries, a masterpiece theater miniseries made in Britain, I guess, because that's also a family thing. So for a little while, I was thinking I was going to be watching an American made version of that. But then uh, obviously I figured out that it was different. Um, but that, yeah, that's pretty much all I knew going into it. And Laura? I went in cold. I mean, obviously, I knew Citizen Kane and Orson Welles and information about his relationship with Rita Hayworth and, you know, things like that. But the film itself, I went in cold. Okay. And Mia? Yeah, same. I had never heard of it before. I mean, obviously, I've heard of Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. But if you had asked me who directed this movie, what is this movie, two weeks ago, I'd have been like, "Mm, whatever, I don't know. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, totally cold. Didn't have time to read anything about it in advance of watching it, so. And I had seen it before, but it was back in college. So I really, watching it especially, I realized how little I remembered of it. But I I think in my mind, regardless of whether I'd seen it or not, I just mainly knew it as Orson Welles' kind of half-lost masterpiece. Should we go ahead and tell people about the film? 
Released in 1942 and directed by Orson Welles, the movie depicts a wealthy Midwestern family at the end of the 1800s and start of the 1900s. Based on the 1918 novel by Booth Tarkington, its prologue sets the Ambersons up as either the toast of the town or privileged aristocrats lording it over everyone else. After a young suitor named Eugene Morgan embarrasses himself, and by extension her, the object of his affection, Isabel Amberson, chooses another man as her husband and has a spoiled son who others in the town hope will one day meet his quote-unquote comeuppance. After going off to school, this son, George, returns to his family just as his own father is in dire financial straits and Eugene Morgan has himself returned from years away, both with a daughter and a successful business producing automobiles. After Isabel's husband passes away, she begins to actively rekindle her former romance with Eugene Morgan, who's obviously still in love with her. But this relationship upsets Isabel's son, George, who, fearing loose talk and scandal, keeps the two apart. The movie was Orson Welles' follow-up to Citizen Kane, a film we'll actually be covering soon, but which had caused some controversy. As a result, RKO, the studio behind both films, had lost some confidence in its deal with Wells, and after unfavorable test screenings, they famously recut the movie and shot a new ending while the director was out of the country. The cut footage was destroyed, and the film that went out to theaters was not the one Wells had planned. The incident only fueled the image of Wells as a quote-unquote difficult filmmaker to work with, at least as far as studios were concerned, which may have helped to make it harder for him to work as a director in the years to come. Despite the compromised state of the film, it's still regarded as a classic, though one that people tend to regard with a sense of regret for what could have been. So, Stephen, why don't you start us off again? What did you think of the movie? Did it meet your expectations as you laid them out before? If I mean, it's as little as those may have been. I mean, I had a kind of a high expectation of it because Citizen Kane, I, I really enjoyed watching it. I haven't seen it since college, like I said. But um, I really walked away from that movie, felt like it was really powerful and it was really well made. Um, so I did expect it to have some of those elements to it. Um, and it did. I, it did meet with my expectations. It, it did feel kind of like more of an event movie, just the way that it was shot and constructed. Um, but it was just really like it kind of hooked me from the very beginning because I liked how, you know, it started out talking about men's fashions and talking about like how everybody thought of the Ambersons. So it kind of set up everything else in that movie to be like, you know, everything that they did was thinking about what the outside world was thinking about them. So like, that's what I liked about it. So I kind of looked at it through that kind of perspective and I really enjoyed it all the way through. I liked um, the performances of pretty much everybody. I liked George, even though he seemed a little one note, but there was a reason for it, especially how they set everything up in the beginning. You sort of understood why everybody kind of was acting the way that they were acting. But unfortunately toward the end of the movie, like I know we'll probably talk about this later but the ending was one of those things where it made me so mad that it kind of retroactively made me not like the movie um so it it kind of was a struggle i did like overall like the movie but that kind of ruined everything else for me yeah that ending is is uh i mean isn't it's not good it's it's, it's like one of the it, it feels so forced and out of nowhere you're talking about but the actually, hospital scene specifically yeah 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 Yeah. so like just out of left field sort of um and just out of the tone of the movie but steven i wanted to ask you though since Mm -hmm. since you were interested in this movie because people would call your family magnificent andersons having now watched the movie are you at all insulted (laughs) because it's i I do think the name in the movie is like slightly ironic 
if not yeah, cool, ironic. It, it kind of makes me think. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my family was super rich and we could do whatever we wanted. And girls in the big hat, like going around town. Yeah, it does. It does like bring a different perspective into it because they were pretty dysfunctional. Um, you know, when you think about how they were, but they had reasons for doing it and they had appearances that they need to keep up with. So kind of. <laughs> I felt really robbed by the ending. Uh, I was very uh, unhappy with it. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, it did. Um, it, did I, it didn't ruin the movie for me because everything up to that was great. But I just was like, why couldn't we see the conversation that you had? I, oh I guess they could gosh. only get two, act, two of the actors to show up or something. <laughs> I was like, you know, you could have at least shown me the conversation you had in the hospital room with the guy. But yeah, yeah. it was but. it was amazing to me that they did it that way. It felt almost like they handed them a page and they had to read off the page. And the way that they even structured mm -hmm. that scene was just like mm -hmm. and after Fanny had gone through all of that, you saw how hysterical and like, you know, she was up and down. She seemed very yeah. like she was on drugs almost because she just sort of stared and smiled. And it was just like so out of character. <laughs> I thought the yeah. whole the character of Lucy itself, she was on drugs the whole time. She was just smiling, like, oh, yeah. Hi, George. I, have fun, George. It didn't make sense. Yeah. Well, Georgie was like the most insufferable character. I wanted to murder him the entire time. There's nothing just, redeeming about him. Nothing redeeming. Nothing. Like, I was like, you have this really weird, like, Oedipus complex with your mother <laughs> where, like, you're a freaking grown adult man. And you can't let her move on with this like really nice gentleman. And just the scene when she was like, when they decide to go to Paris and she was like hugging him to her breast and stroking his head. I was like, I'm mm. nauseous right now watching this. It's funny that you say Oedipus because it, it's like a Greek tragedy. It was so heightened, so melodramatic. So yeah, it's not my turn. Yeah. <laughs> but that was so interesting, though, about like the dynamic that Eugene had with his daughter as well. Like, I, I felt like both of them were couples. Like, when you kind of watch them with their scenes together, too. And maybe it's just like looking at it at a, at a, in a 2020 kind of 2021 kind of lens. You sort of look for that stuff and you kind of like, wait, what? Are they yeah. really daughter? Especially the way that they were introduced at the beginning. It's not like when she meets George for the first time, she's like, oh, that's my dad. She never, she says, never says it. Why not? Yeah. Just odd duck like basically yeah. this guy's insulting your father over and over and over again and you don't just be like dude i mean i guess it's a good way to find out what he really thinks of your father doesn't seem to get under <laughs> her how much skin of a, at all i know that yeah i kind of felt like she she took it pretty lightly the way after all the things that he said she kind of brushed it off pretty easily she almost was just like doing it in a teasing way or something. Yeah, I hated this movie. <laughs> oh, wow. From start oh, wow. to finish. I, I kind of took, uh, the, what was her name? Lucy, the daughter? Yeah. I, yeah. I kind of took her reactions as like, a, I guess, a combination of she's kind of a, a cool character. Like, I mean, like temperature wise, like she's just sort of like even keeled and mm -hmm. that she is kind of toying with him because I I don't they never really set up that she knows the history of the Ambersons that well but I it made me wonder if she did and she was just like I'm gonna fuck with this guy right but because, they never like, really show you that and yeah, I, I know, doubt I that yeah. out of but, the cuts that the 45 minutes that broke Orson Welles' mm -hmm. heart and his career had anything to really do with that because I don't think he was as concerned with that as much as the decay of right. the family the yeah. prophetic idea of innovation in the automobile of what it did to you know, society. 
So mm-hmm. I don't know if he really was concerned with Lucy yeah. and her inner workings. She was, and I'd love to know what went on in the pharmacy when they cut away from her and she asks for a sip of water. Does she faint because she just got left? Or like, was this all just completely a facade? Because it certainly wasn't clear to me. It was aggravating and, you know, infuriating at times, especially yeah. when the mother is holding Georgie to her bosom and just, you know, basically giving up on the, her last bit of happiness forever, you know, and it, we're just all supposed to take it, you know, and just eat it up as if that, I mean, maybe that is what happened back then, but this spoiled brat of a son did nothing for her. I, I just, it, none of it really got to me in, a, in like a good way. <laughs> well, I will say I didn't particularly like any of the characters except maybe Eugene. Right. Um, but I did still enjoy watching them um, basically uh, ruin each other's lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I also wondered if the reason that... Um, George was so against the romance between his mother and Eugene was because he had feelings for Lucy and that could have sort of, obviously they would have been stepbrother and stepsister at that point. And it would have been pretty strange for them to also get married, but she didn't really, not that she seemed to want that, but I just thought maybe from his perspective, that was something that he was concerned about. But yeah, it was another thing that was kind of never really, um, they never talked about that. So I don't, I, I guess, it probably does fall more on this scandal side of that was his concern. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that just because of the way they, they set everything up at the beginning is that like, they were very concerned about what everybody thought of them in that town. So mm-hmm. the fact that like, that was probably in his mind, it wasn't at the forefront, but he's also was set up to be one of those characters that he did whatever he wanted and whatever yeah. he wanted was great. So his mother, you know what, he didn't care about his mother's feelings and his mother yeah. knew that she would accept whatever he said and do what she wanted do what he wanted. That's what I well, what's interesting, though, I think about George is that he doesn't actually seem to care what anyone thinks about him because he just thinks he's better than everyone, you know? So it's like he's running amok around that town in the prologue, just like being a complete asshole to everybody. Yeah. And he doesn't care that people are yelling at him and criticizing him because he, he knows in his own head that he doesn't answer to them. He only answers to this family that he imagines is at the top of the world, you know? And mm-hmm. only finds out later that, no, not anymore. You guys are on the decline. And he never but, really does. I mean, he gets his comeuppance in terms of his money going. But mm-hmm. he never really, I mean, we're supposed to believe that he learns and apologizes with the prayer scene, et cetera. But right. no one ever tells him to shut up. Ever. In the film. like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's and true. what is he law? I mean, other than the money, which I'm sure is something like now he actually has to get a real job but even then like the lawyer's like oh no like i don't want you working in the dynamite factory so it's like okay even your fall isn't that hard and i mean i guess i to me i read it as more he's lost his mother who i think he just really had this like kind of creepily tinged relationship with (laughs) and i'm sure he was like sad about losing lucy but I agree with you, Stephen, because I also thought there's like at the scene at the end where she's walking with her dad. And I was just like, oh, my God, like this is so. Yes. I mean, she literally says, the way that I just want to be with you. Yeah. yeah that was the way creepy. they're looking at each other. And yeah, yeah that line. Mm-hmm. And the way I'm they sure. played it. Yeah. yeah. It was the way uh, they played that scene. 
Um, but I guess I thought to me, like him, him getting his comeuppance was like, he's lost his, you know, in order of probably caring, like he's lost his, fian- not even fiance, he's lost his love, he's lost his money, and he's lost his mother and I, and his dad too. But, you know, he didn't really seem that actually upset about that. Nope. Yeah. I think that one character does tell him to basically shut up, though. That Lucy does when because she's basically like, stop proposing to me. Yeah. Uh, we're not doing this. And it, that's kind of where she reveals that she is just kind of maybe just fucking with him. Like she's just keeping him on a chain. I wish that know? I believe that that inner world was existed, but I don't know. If I understand true. that criticism. I do. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to try to like say that this movie is perfect or not compromised because I think it totally is. But yeah, I, th- I think you might be right that some of that wasn't even there in the original version. Um, I don't I don't know. It's hard to say, but I I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Well, I also thought to me, the part when she cut him the most wasn't even when she was like, stop asking me to marry you, but was when he's like, I'm going away forever. I'm never going to. And he like kept mm-hmm. like ramping it up. He's like, I'm yeah. going yeah. on a trip. Sure. I'm going on a long trip. Yeah. I'm never going to see you again. And she was just so like stone faced. Like, bye. Though, yeah. Bye. Oh, have fun. That sounds so yeah. lovely. And I was like, oh, my God. It just it reminded me of like. I know I had like a flashback to like dating and just being like, oh, cool. That's nice. Bye. Whatever. It, you know, just this it totally, came off a like, little no bit emotion. like a sociopath. It, you know, yeah, but I love it. Because <laughs> well, even in the beginning when he's insulting the dad, when they first meet, like he's incorrigible. He has no ambition. And she just kind of rolls around and they waltz mm-hmm. as if he's just charming as ever. And and even Eugene never says a bad word about George. And even when the whole automobile, the underlying theme of technology innovation and what the sacrifice is at the dinner table when he's like, you know, it's a nuisance. And he no- he doesn't disagree. He does. Right. He says, you're maybe right. And maybe it isn't better for man and mankind. And it's just all very bleak. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the most believable of those dynamics, though, because he so obviously does not want to insult the woman he loves and he sees Mm -hmm. that kid rightfully so is just a complete extension of her so i totally believe joseph cotton's character uh eugene morgan like doesn't want to insult this kid this idiot kid that he knows is wrong and he should just take out back and beat the shit out of like he absolutely (laughs) knows that's what he should do but he that he can't do it i I buy that i I would argue that that is in the movie whereas like i think you're right that the lucy part isn't there i just wanted to add on to what you said mia about like she acted like she didn't care and it was like dating i felt like it was more like when you try to run away from home when you're a child and you keep upping the ante to your parents saying like i'm gonna leave the yard i'm gonna go outside the town she wanted to and she kept saying see ya see ya okay it was her trying to make him grow up. That's where I saw that with that. Like, are you ever going to just stop acting like a child and like man up and, you know, make something of yourself? And he wasn't going for it. He was just going to run away. That's the way. Yeah. I, I love it. Really I love all the inner world that you, you guys give to this actress. Who <laughs> to me just looked insane. <laughs> I thought with the, the scene that you were just talking about, Jeremiah, I also thought it was a very like when they go low, we go high kind of thing where he's like, I'm not mm-hmm. going to like yeah. fall into your trap here. I'm not going to be rude to you. I'm going to like calmly respond with like a thoughtful, nuanced response. And then I'm just going to say, I have to go and leave. But like, you know, he was polite. He was collected. Yeah. So I just thought it was also yeah. like, I'm an actual classy, mature human being. And it just makes you look like that much more of a yeah. child. And I to me, all that right read as just melodrama. And if mm. I... 
and this is going to be probably one of the most controversial things that are said. If I had to watch another 45 minutes of this family decaying in the true Wellian cut, I would have probably hated it even more because they were <laughs> so annoying and over the top. It was some of the, the lines were just laughable. Like we're, when he's in the, even the first instance when he's talking, walking Fanny to her room and he's just shoot me, just shoot me. And I'm just like, okay, if this guy doesn't end up shot at the end of the movie, then it's all a big waste <laughs> of my time. So I'm actually, I'm totally with you, Laura. I like, we like paused the movie, like, I don't know, halfway through to like get up and like get a snack or something. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, I feel like I'm watching a dream where everyone's reaction is just that like 20% off, like more heightened or not heightened enough Mm -hmm. or just something Mm -hmm. where I was like, am I? I just felt like I was constantly missing something like you do in a dream when you're like talking to someone and like you know you wake up and you think back on it and you're like wait that doesn't make Mm -hmm. any sense but in the dream it does and it just it was kind of driving me crazy because I was like why is everyone freaking out about this like why is this aunt just like hysterical about everything why is this happening like I just felt but at the same time it was like this you know family deal like you know all the things were normal but just their reaction she won an academy award right yeah. No, yeah. no, she was nominated. Nominated. She won. It didn't um, win any oh, okay. awards. It, it was nominated for four. Um, oh, she won some other awards. Yeah, she won a couple of other awards. I feel like if um, if you take each scene and you put it in a, its own movie <laughs> where it had a completely different narrative, because she, I think she was amazing. It's just none of it added up. Her, you know, little girl thing at one point the boiler scene which we talked about how he directed I mean there's that whole story about how he directed her Mm -hmm. over and over again giving her a different motivation and then by the end of it she was so fragile that all of the motivations that he wanted the little girl the you know came out in it so it was like the perfect shot and to me I was just like none of this makes sense she's losing her fucking mind and we're all just supposed to be okay you know Let's, and then at the end, when she's completely composed, obviously it's tacked on and it doesn't quite make sense. But to me, I was like, well, thank fucking God, because this hysterical woman narrative that we wanted to go with just because nobody wanted to marry her wasn't really up my alley either. So I was just fine. I was like, okay, good. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. To make that end scene make sense to me, it was just that she was finally out of the Amberson business almost. Like she was able to kind of do her own thing at the boarding house. And that's why she was so composed. That's the only way it could make sense to me at the end why she was acting like that. Mm -hmm. And also the Mm -hmm. huge part where they lose all their money, which seems like a lot since they own this town since 1873, to bad investments, quote unquote. Yeah, I was confused about how they lost their money and what went on with the um, Isabel's husband, George's father? How? Why was he? We never really, or unless I missed it, we never really seemed to know nope. exactly why he was in financial straits they made or how he died. A lot of bad decisions. Yeah, mm-hmm. the only thing I could, un- the only thing that um, that they really ever specifically referred to was George spending a lot of money when he was in college. Also, the but I cannot imagine. Okay, yeah, that's true. They did mention a headlight company, but that was the first mention I remember hearing of it. I don't remember hearing of it any at any point before that until they said, oh, we invested in the headlight company and it all went bad. But 
I had no idea other than that how they had lost their entire fortune. And it seemed like the point of view of the film was sort of anti-innovation. I mean, just how the automobile took over, created more death <laughs> and destruction. You know, I, I, it just, it seemed like the, the point of view was opposed. I don't know about that because yeah. the people, the person that was the most opposed to it is the one that sort of ended up suffering the most because maybe because he wouldn't sort of, he didn't have any um, ideas of his own. He didn't have any ambition. He, you know, he, he wasn't able to move with the times at all. Yeah, I think the view of the film, like if there's a viewpoint to it, a perspective, I think it's a pox on all their houses because it's like progress is bad, but also the old way sucks. So this we're just not doing something right here in the world. Is, it seems to be what it is to me. Because mm -hmm. I don't think mm -hmm. this movie gives you a favorable view of this family or what they stand for in this world. They they seem like old and outdated and like they should be pushed aside. But the movie is also like, but should it be for this? Should it be for like progress of this sort that is dehumanizing mm -hmm. and just sort of leads to people becoming statistics in a death count or something like that? So would you call yeah. that nihilistic? Um... I don't know if I would, but I understand why you would ask it. <laughs> that's, no, I think that's fair. It's just to me, the, the overwhelming question that I thought of after the film was who defines progress mm -hmm. and where do you go from there? I think it's just an open ended question. I think I think the movie is like just taking a look at at, at something it sees in the world or this story, because it's a book mm -hmm. before before it's a movie and I got it I haven't read the book I don't know how how far the movie gets from the book but I would assume there's a lot of this in there as well about like the you know the that time in our history where things were transitioning and and people didn't know what to do about it or if they should like let this happen but um I mean it it, it does seem to to just be that you can't stop it so you got to just figure out how to deal with it um mm -hmm at yeah. some point, which is maybe that's nihilistic, but I think it's just more like an observation and you have to kind of, it's how you react to it more than like what you can ultimately do about it in a bigger picture, I think. But I, but I don't think the movie necessarily even does a great job of showing what you should do in reaction to it because all these characters react extremely poorly to it, obviously. But I don't think that, yeah, I don't think it answers that question. And I don't know if he was really trying to answer that question. But I do think it's it's sort of similar to what we're going through. I'm sure every generation goes through it, but what we're going through with like smartphones and screens and that type of thing in society now, it's like, you can't get away from it. You can't escape it. It's very useful in many ways. It's transforming the way we do everything now, especially in the middle of the pandemic. It's so necessary. Is it great long-term? Who knows? <laughs> we don't know. Right. We don't really know, but you can't just use your fax machine all day either you know that's not gonna work my fax machine <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you don't use your fax machine or your beeper I use my fax Old machine people. <laughs> just to be clear i i did i don't think he was trying to answer the question i think he was just trying to ask it i think it's like yeah, one of those yeah. types of movies where he he's like i don't care what the answer is that's for you to figure out like i'm just gonna ask the question and walk away yeah. that's um, but i don't know like because the, the i think the ending does compromise it so much and the missing mm -hmm. footage, no matter what it did, like it's hard to tell what this movie was supposed to be, I think. Oh, I just had wanted to add to what Alicia said and what Jeremiah said about progress isn't really like good or bad. It's just progress, really. It's just like we're moving forward. We're just trying to figure it out as we go. But 
I mean, I agree. I, I think I was watching the Bogdanovich, um, some YouTube videos about him interviewing Orson Welles and stuff and how the preview cards and how people wouldn't sit still for the full version of the film. Mm -hmm. They hated it. Some people mm -hmm. laughed at certain performances, but then there was 20% of the audiences that thought it was the best film that they'd ever seen. And how oh. tragic it was that this is where they end up because nobody ended up happy. Wells or Robert Wise who had to recut the film and their ties severed and you know, it's just, it seems it's kind of tragic all across the board. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, one thing just with the progress and technology thing, I thought it was really interesting that one of the youngest people in the film is the one who's so anti the automobile and the changes. Because mm -hmm. usually in movies, and I think in life too, it's like, you know, younger people are embracing technology and mm -hmm. are like, oh, horses, those are old. So I just thought that was weird <laughs> and also just didn't necessarily seem that believable although I guess a, a lot of stuff in his character is this like kind of throwbacky like you know I like so obsessed with his mom and you know just all that kind of stuff to where he mm -hmm. just seemed like a contrarian so maybe it's more that like than anything yeah. mm -hmm. so one note yeah oh he's totally one note I think that's I think that's his purpose is just to show that that kind of person doesn't have much to them though. But I, I do think that this movie does start with a young character being the voice of progress. Cause it starts with Eugene Morgan as mm -hmm. a young man, like with a prototype True. of a car, mm -hmm. like he's, he's mm -hmm. the future where it's just like this movie, sh really the bulk of the story takes place as he's older and, it's already there, you know? Yeah. So, and Lucy is obviously pro car. So, yeah. you know, sure. <laughs> but, but I do think you're right that, that it is interesting that then we have George as this young man who's like, screw all this shit. I want the old ways. Yeah. But, but I mean, why wouldn't he like, look at the way yeah. he's lived. He's a privileged little fuck. Make so. America right. great again. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I was, Sorry, go ahead, Alicia. Oh, I was just going to say, I was sorry we didn't get to see a little bit more of the middle-aged love story between <laughs> Eugene and Isabel. Because I, I wasn't was, sure. Yeah. We didn't really see any of their youthful love story except for him tripping over and breaking mm -hmm. the instrument. And then we just kind of saw them already at some sort of understanding and then breaking up. So yeah. we didn't really get any of the fun part of their yeah. love no, story. No, really, they really tortured them. kissed hands a little bit. <laughs> I had to rewatch that scene because I wasn't sure what really happened and why they weren't, why they broke up. Like it just was sort of like, it was an, almost like an afterthought, you know, for them breaking up. I thought it was kind of strange. Yep. Well, he, yeah, was, I guess... he was drunk apparently, which I totally missed. Jeremiah had to tell me. I was like, oh, I thought he just fell. And I was like, this bitch. Oh, when, they were, <laughs> when they were young. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when it, they were young. He embarrassed yeah. her by being drunk in her front yard. They yeah. say that at some point, but it's really fast. And then later they reference it again when they're like, he had his last drink so long ago because he stopped mm -hmm. drinking after that. Mm -hmm. You know, the well, woman who, sorry, the woman who played her is the grandmother of Drew Barrymore, Dolores, Dolores Costello. I was just going to say he got off easy because I don't know if he would have developed the car if he had married her. I think he would have had to follow whatever the, the Amberson family was. It was obvious because George wasn't technically an Amberson, but they always was like, you're an Amberson. Oh, wait, you're actually a whatever his last name was. Minifer? Yeah. Yeah. They always, oh, yeah. Were, they always had to correct themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think like, you know, his life would have been totally different if he had married mm -hmm. her. The, the other thing that I thought was weird is like, okay, so... Eugene's wife has died at some point, right? Lucy's like, whatever, totally. Like, they never talk about her. 
And it's like really clear to everyone that, okay, Eugene has been in love with Isabel this whole time. And, you know, sure, I get it. He was like, okay, this relationship isn't going to work out. You've abandoned me. I'm going to go off and meet someone else. But like, you know, you still hold like a little bit of a flame in your heart or something like that. But like, it was just weird that like, look at George's reaction compared to Lucy's reaction to their Mm -hmm. relationship. And maybe she is just like on drugs. But (laughs) I just also thought (laughs) that like, she's supposed to be even younger than he is because that's why Mm -hmm. she won't marry him is because she's too young. But she... They never mention her mom. They never mention their memories. She has no objection to the relationship or even like uncomfortableness with it. And she, from the beginning scenes when they're at the party, I assume she knew all about the family from her dad just talking about them to her because she seemed like in on the joke from the beginning. Whereas Georgie's mm-hmm. like, what's going, wait, well, who is this? What's happening? What, uh, 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 all over the place. Um, so maybe she had just already been like, oh, my dad, this is like his, you know, young sweetheart. And OK, I don't really care. Sure. Um, but I just thought the contrast between them was really interesting. Yeah, I feel like a lot was put on the Lucy character, like Laura was saying earlier, a lot was put on her. She was given a lot of weird, like, t- things to do in the movie that just don't really make sense or are not consistent character wise. The actress, I think it's fine. And she pulled off all her scenes and everything. But but yeah, we we really don't get any of her inner life or thoughts or feelings at all. Even the end, even the creepy scene with her father at the end. Why wouldn't you want to move on and find someone? Why not? Why do yeah. you just want to be with your dad forever? That's, he was that's pretty very, cute. very strange. <laughs> he was, but you know. But he's your dad. <laughs> he's your dad. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Especially because so. she's such like a bell of the ball. Like I loved at the beginning because yeah. I already hated Georgie when everyone is like, oh, oh, and he's like, how long have you been in town for? And you know, yeah, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who gave you those flowers? I, I just did not understand why she even gave him the time of day after the first like <laughs> three minutes of their conversation. Oh, yeah. That scene when she was leaving the house, he's like, yo, you'll be ready at whatever time. Yeah. She's like, All right. <laughs> I was like, run. Literally. Deal say, break. Out loud. Or like, deal break. <laughs> yeah. Like controlling, like, and how was Eugene not like, I don't think you should be in this relationship. Like he's like, oh, he's an Amberson or he's Isabel Amberson's son. And I'm like, she seems really chill this whole time. She didn't seem crazy or controlling or anything. I'm curious. I think Laura, you get right of first refusal on this. Do you want to answer it or think about it? Because you seem to have disliked the movie the most. I think we all <laughs> saw it as like at least compromise, but various levels of still being satisfied by the movie. But you seem to have not liked it. So do you have a favorite moment or scene in the movie? Well, I think I, I mentioned the the part, the ludicrous moment where he was just like shoot me just shoot me it reminded me of this film arsenic and old lace with cary grant where one of the crazy relatives is always like bully just bully and it's more comical and the film is literally about two old women that murder people but it's done and there's levels to it and you you don't feel like you're losing time in in an hourglass by watching it so that was i think the pinnacle of the worst part of what the film was for me. Hated it. <laughs> I mean, I like listening to wow. Orson Welles' voice. I thought the reading of the credits at the end was fun in the radio show style. <laughs> that was cool. I'm Anybody lucky else? I got to that part. <laughs> they were lucky. I, you got I, to I had a lot of little little things like that that I liked a lot about it, um, and I did. Even though the ending kind of 
yeah, as I said, I felt kind of robbed by the ending. I still did enjoy watching the movie and I did, I was entertained by it. And I liked that there was a line that I liked. I don't even remember who said it, but it was, there aren't any times, but new times. And I kind of thought that that sort of set the tone for the struggle that they were about to go through. Um, so I liked that, but yeah, but the ending just really takes a lot away from it. Yeah, that was, yeah, I like that line about new times because there's no bearing on it. It's sort of like what progress is. It's like, mm -hmm. it's a new time. You know, it's not putting a judgment on it. But um, I really liked, I felt like the ending should have been at the part where uh, George was over his mother's bed and they had that voiceover about like he got his comeuppance even though nobody cared at that point. I thought that was just a really interesting stopping point. I really liked that part because it kind of had come full circle where he was just the most hated guy in the town and then all of a sudden like nobody even thought about him anymore not all of a sudden but just like nobody thought about him anymore that would have and been that that really been... great actually yeah it would have been kind of a depressing ending but i felt like that was the ending we kind of needed you know just to see it's more um, meaningful but, at least yeah yeah and, and another part i liked was when georgie had like gotten to the fight with that kid and then went back and talked to his parents and was kind of holding court where he had the curls <laughs> in his hair yeah and he was just sort of standing there it looked like a painting I really enjoyed that scene just because it just felt like, you know, everything Rosen said along what George wanted pretty much. His parents weren't going to stop him. His grandfather wasn't going to stop him. Mm -hmm. I actually was a way, I actually was worried that George was going to be way worse than he turned out to be. He was not great, but I was like, this guy's going to kill someone. <laughs> hey, you know, he's only like what in his twenties when the movie ends. That's so true. Life is long. I mean, I think he did kill someone. Yeah, I mean, well, his mom I seemed fine when she went to Paris. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I will also clarify my comments. So I hated pretty much every single character in the movie, but I thought the movie itself was like so good. Like the the shots, the the set, the editing, like all of that kind of stuff. I thought it was just a really cool movie to watch. And I mean, I assumed you were supposed to hate at least most of the characters. And so I was like, okay, which I don't personally enjoy movies like that because they just make me stressed out. Um, but yeah, so, um, but okay, my favorite scene is when they went out, when when uh, he like strong arms Lucy into going on that cutter ride with him. <laughs> and then the car is having all those troubles and they're all like, Georgie, push the car, push the car, Georgie. And he's like dying, inhaling the exhaust. I honestly was like, is he gonna die right here? Cause he's like <laughs> choking on it and coughing and they're all just laughing and they're all sitting in the car and like not paying any attention to him whatsoever other than to tell him to push harder, push harder. And he's like, eh, 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 eh. and I loved it. I was like, oh my God, just <laughs> suffer, suffer, Georgie. I, I had two that I, I wanted to, I guess, name check. I, the, the, uh, the ballroom scene when he, returns from school and everyone's there for him, even though they all hate him probably. Um, I just did not remember, like I said, anything about this movie except the sleigh ride scene because we had to watch that over and over in school for some reason. I don't know why. But um, I think they use that as like a good example of some sort of editing or something. But I thought the way the ballroom scene was shot and staged was so like, completely impressive like it, I, I just didn't recall it at all and it just sort of was I, I couldn't believe how they'd even done it because the, the camera is moving so fluidly 
and everything's in the perfect place at the perfect moment for for the camera moves and it's just i don't know how you do that in 1942 because they don't have steady cams uh it's just like the the technology and everything is just so different then and it like they they were still figuring out how to do things similar to that later on like nobody else could do something like that and then the other scene that uh i really liked was the dinner scene when uh eugene doesn't take the uh the insult and like runs with the, the his monologue about progress and how George might be right. I, I just, I, I really liked that monologue. When you were talking about how they made the ballroom scene, the, mm-hmm. they, they built it as a real house, but with walls that contracted and came down mm-hmm. so that they were able right. to sh- run the camera through and, and do all those crazy shots. Yeah. I mean, that's wow. what, that's what I think is so impressive about it is that like they don't have steady cams in, so they have to figure out yeah. other ways to do it. And other people just either weren't doing that or weren't allowed to do that sort of thing then. Like this did happen in a moment, I think it's important to kind of recognize, and maybe we'll talk about this more actually next week, um, but that Orson Welles for a little bit of time could do anything he wanted and no one could stop him basically. And so he <laughs> could he could be like, we're going to do it this way and you have to pay for it because you agreed to that. And they couldn't really say no. And that's, that's ultimately part of why they fucked him over with the edit probably. But um, was that because of was that because he had been he had had success with Citizen Kane or no, if anything, the opposite is or they they Citizen Kane made them want to take control away from him, but they'd already made this deal with him. They had a multi-picture deal with him uh, based off of his his acclaim as like a Broadway and radio star. Oh, okay. Um, it was such a huge deal when he went to Hollywood and, and started making Citizen Kane, and they they were mm-hmm. they were they thought they were like getting into the greatest deal they ever had, and then like the whole Hearst thing came about with Citizen Kane. Yeah, let, let's save that for another time because we will be talking about <laughs> that movie. But Alicia, you you had something you wanted to say before? Oh, I actually we just kind of touched on it a little bit. I was just going to ask about the the scenes where they're walking around the house. And they're going up and down the stairs yeah. and down the hallways. And sometimes they're in shadow and sometimes they're in light. And I just thought it was really interesting. And um, I just thought a lot of the choices um, that he made about the lighting in those scenes just were interesting. Because sometimes they're not even in shadow. Sometimes they're almost completely right. in darkness <laughs> and you can only hear their voices. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, that was all I was going to mention. It was just I found that interesting as well. We didn't really discuss it. So. It was interesting watching this movie with so many close-up shots in it after watching Joan of Arc and talking about oh, yeah. those close-up mm-hmm. shots so yeah. much. Like I was thinking about that when I was watching mm-hmm. it. It was interesting watching I Married a Witch, which was made the same year because the use of black and white that they used in, in this movie was so different than how I'd seen it with just more of a conventional shot movie that was in black and white. It was sort of like they used black and white as kind of one of the characters in mm-hmm. in the Magnificent Ambersons, just the way that it was sort of composed of the shots and everything. Right. There was another cool shot, I think, when Fanny was arguing with George near the end of the movie and they went through the doors and they kept moving the, the camera as they went to the, the double doors at the end. And it was like one continuous shot, but you saw them move the camera as they were going through the doors. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting shot. Mm-hmm. So now that we've all kind of shared our opinions on the movie, how about we look back at what people said about it at the time and we could see how that stacks up to what we think of it. So uh, the New York Times called it an exceptionally well-made film dealing with a subject scarcely worth the attention which is lavished upon it, (laughs) which is kind of like a 
Nice double-edged sword there, I think. I second that. <laughs> I feel like that is exactly, if I was a more uh, literary person, what I would say. <laughs> and then Time Magazine said it's a great motion picture, adult and demanding. Artistically, it is a textbook of advanced cinema technique, the novel use of side lighting, and exaggerated perspective that made Kane seem unlike any other movie, floods Amberson's with the same revealing eloquence, examining faces, bathrooms, streets, the cluttered detail of the Ambersons' magnificence from a viewpoint so fresh that it creates a visual suspense in the very act of clarification. So pretty much what you were saying before about close-ups and shadows and all that stuff, right? <laughs> um, and then, of course, uh, we kind of mentioned before that it was nominated for four Oscars. Those were for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress for Agnes Moorhead, and then Best Black and White Cinematography and Best Black and White Art Direction. And uh, that was the year that Mrs. Miniver won Best Picture. So this did not win, obviously. Um, it didn't win any Oscars. And uh, then Tim Holt, who plays George, did win Best Actor from the National Board of Review, which I found kind of surprising. And Agnes Moorhead won Best Actress, not Supporting Actress, uh, from National Board of Review and the New York Film Critics Circle. So the movie definitely had some acclaim at the time, I think it's safe to say. Although, who knows, maybe it could have been more if it was the movie that it was intended to be originally. Or maybe not. And then just for the purposes of what this podcast sort of is, um, it was on the Sight and Sound poll twice in 1972. It ranked at number eight. And in 1982, it ranked at number seven. So it's been a little bit since it was listed on the poll. And it took a little bit for it to get onto the poll. So I feel like every time I say on the poll, it's like I'm talking about something else. <laughs> Just picturing <laughs> Orson Welles on that poll. Orson Welles on the poll. That's what Georgie had to resort to after I lost all the money. <laughs> so, so with all that historical context. Making it rain. Um, has the movie, as far as you're concerned, and I think we've kind of you know, said this in longer ways, but let's let's sum up our feelings. Has it stood the test of time? I did find it entertaining, but I don't know if I would put it in like the top 10. I, don't, I wouldn't put it as high as it's ranked on this list, personally. Well, they wouldn't either anymore. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if, I think it has held up for where the time was when it came out, but I don't know if it necessarily holds up to today's standard, I guess, mm -hmm. of movies. Um, but I, I feel like, I don't know, it, it it was definitely well made and it was definitely like it had a point of view that I really thought was interesting. I don't necessarily need to like or dislike something to get something out of it. So I, I did get something out of it. But I yeah, I don't I don't know where I was going with that. But yeah, I don't know if it necessarily holds up. Um, I'll say that I, I think that it's a little bit of both. I I, I, I enjoy the movie. But I don't know how much of my enjoyment of it is knowing the backstory of the movie and, you know, the loss of what could have been. I, and I don't know how much that is tied up in what makes this movie a classic. It's kind of hard to say. You can't separate the two. I think if you if you know anything about that story mm -hmm. and the, the history of the production and Wells, like the, the trajectory of his life after this or his career, at least, um, although I would say both. So to me, it's sort of hard to answer this question. I think... I'm not sure the movie actually does stand up to the test of time because I'm not sure it's easy for people today to engage with the movie like this. But I do think it's a weird curiosity that film buffs are always going to want to go back to 
and wonder about what could have been. So it's, I don't know, it's like I said, it's hard to separate those two competing things, I think. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so high up on the list. I think it's more of like everybody knows so much about the making of the movie that it's sort of like they're imposing their own thoughts about it mm-hmm. to make yeah. it better than it really is. Yeah, and I wonder if 1972 and 82, if, if that like stretch of years was when Orson Welles was really on the rounds telling people about like this movie could have been great. And and all the, the, the filmmakers who were coming up then were people he'd influenced and or, or the critics at least that were voting at that time were people that loved Orson Welles so much and had like reexamined his career. And, but then they sort of were like, yeah, it was really good. We talked about it. Now let's move on to other movies for 1992 and so on. But um, Laura and Mia, did you eh, have anything? Nothing really to add. I mean, I think the film techniques and stuff like that in it are incredible. You know, I agree with you. Like it's amazing that they were able to get some of these shots and things like that. So early on in film existence, um, but like, I mean, the story didn't really do that much for me. So I think it stands up as more a curiosity, what could have been, you know, that kind of thing, as opposed to just like the movie standing alone. I wasn't that impressed with the shots or the visual shadow element of the film, the Caravaggio darkness. I thought it was all very melodramatic and didn't ring true. And I'm also probably one of the few people that do not want to see the longer version of the film because I just think it would have continued with more of the same. You know, one thing I did think about was, remember that movie AI that came out? Yeah, the, oh, Spielberg. Where, yeah, where that was one of those movies where like I kind of liked it up until like the ending, which made me retroactively dislike the movie. So I'm thinking about like, how would the movie be if, if um, the director had been alive, like when he, and he made the movie that he wanted to make and how much people would have, you know, had a different perspective of it. Because I don't think that movie, like when you look at it later, people really stack it up to being like a really great movie. It has some people who, who really love it though. AI? It's, it's, yeah. Really? There are people who think that movie is a complete masterpiece and I don't quite get it. But I also haven't watched it in like, probably close to 20 years now, I guess. So I don't know. That's like some Reddit group that like, <laughs> meets on Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's um, what it made me think about, like this movie. Like it's never as good as the movie that you made in your head. Yeah. Or, or the movie you just imagine could have been. Because that, like mm-hmm. for people who don't know AI, of course, that was a movie that Stanley Kubrick had developed for years and then he died and and Steven Spielberg went and made it. And if you know anything about those two filmmakers, there's some overlap, but there's plenty of differences in their approaches to filmmaking and storytelling. So it's it's just like kind of impossible to know what Stanley Kubrick's version of that would have been, I think. Although there's also reports that he always wanted Spielberg to, to be the one to make it. So who fucking knows? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway, should we move on to our, our bonus question? Yes, let's do that. Okay. So, uh, Stephen, you picked our bonus question this time around, and you asked us all to name our favorite movie that scared us. And you specified that it's not your favorite scary movie, because sometimes there's a difference, but a movie that legitimately frightened you. Um, first of all, like we and we posted this in our Facebook group and got some really interesting answers that we'll share in a second, but I'm kind of curious i wasn't quite sure what you meant by that or if if you saw the answers people gave and if you thought that they adhered to your standard of what you were trying to ask for i'm kind of curious 
I think what, what people had answered in the Facebook were more accurate because I was thinking about asking because I think Alicia last week had asked or last time we had the podcast was what's your favorite scary movie? And I think she had mentioned like maybe Nightmare on Elm Street. And yeah. I feel like there is a difference. Sometimes you just enjoy the movie because it's not necessarily scary, but it's qualified as a scary movie. Um, because one of my favorite scary movies is Scream, but it's not necessarily scary, but I enjoyed how it played out in the actors and the performances. But there were some other movies that actually like it made me scared when I watched it or it gave me nightmares. So I feel like <laughs> what people had answered in the Facebook page was kind of accurate as to that. Okay. Um, so do we want to go around and share our answers? Then we'll share some from, from our Facebook group. Anybody yeah, want to start? Okay. Sure. I'll start. Um, so I don't really find movies to be that scary. It's impossible for me to to divorce my feelings about a movie from knowing that it's fiction, you know? Like, I, I, I don't get scared by fiction films. So I guess what I realized in trying to answer this question is that documentaries tend to scare me more because they show stuff that's real and sometimes that stuff is fucking frightening. Mm -hmm. um, so I answered Citizen Four in our Facebook group because uh, there's a moment in that movie that just always creeps me out uh, the few times I've seen it and where they're in this hotel room and it's about Edward Snowden, of course. And he's, he's starting to tell reporters his story and he wants to take apart the phones basically. And maybe some other devices, I don't recall now, just to make sure there's no bugs in them. And as soon as he starts to do that, uh, or pretty quickly afterwards, the fire alarm goes off and I don't think they specifically or explicitly say it, but they heavily imply that he at least believes that the CIA might have set off the fire alarms to get them out of the room so they could come back and rebug the room. Um, who knows? But it, it's it's just kind of a creepy moment. And uh, it's it's things like that that I think scare me in movies more than other things. The government bugging you. <laughs> no, just, just that I'm like, oh, this is a real thing that happens in the world. And that's kind of or it could be. Yeah. Um, like another one is like movies about the financial crisis. I'm like, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe it mm -hmm. could happen again. Like right. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's a good answer. I also, I'm, I'm kind of on the same page with you, Jeremiah, as far as like scary movies don't really scare me. I don't scare very easy from fiction um, or monsters or like slasher films or anything like that. But, um, but the movie Zodiac about the hunt for the Zodiac killer um, with Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, that movie freaked me out. There's a scene where he goes to meet this guy to ask him about someone that used to work for him at a movie theater uh, because he thinks this guy might have been the Zodiac Killer. And he he looked at the handwriting and he said the handwriting on the, the movie poster, the handwriting on something in the movie theater matched the handwriting that the people at the newspaper, the letters they were receiving. And he goes into this guy's house and they talk and he takes him down to his basement and they're just like alone in this leaky dark basement. And the guy's like, oh, that's my handwriting. <laughs> and I was like, get out of there. I had to like turn on every light in my house and like open my like open my bedroom door and be like, every the house is empty. There's no one in here. <laughs> like everything's fine. You're fine. You're alone. Like there's no boogeyman, but, um, but yeah, that, that really, that really scared me. Um, but yeah, real stories, they're true, true stories freaking out. I could see that. Um, 
So I, I put on our Facebook page that The Shining was the movie that scared me the most. Um, and I saw that pretty late in life. I saw that when I was in college with a group of my friends. And, and overall, the movie is just very scary, the way that it's directed and the music and just the shots that they use are just very creepy. And it also has that kind of vibe since it was made so long ago that, you know, it's more practical in the, the way that they use the effects. Um, but the part that got me the most was when um, Shelley Duvall's character goes through his novel and realizes he's just been writing over and over again, mm. all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. <laughs> that to me was just like, it freaked me out just because you realize how crazy he really is because he's writing page after page of the same thing. And that just like, it really bothered me for some reason. And I had nightmares about it later. What scares me about that scene is that someone had to sit there and type all that out on a typewriter <laughs> in 1979 or whatever, when they made that. <laughs> what I was going to say is, so after we watched The Magnificent Ambersons, then we watched some YouTube video that had all of these like movies with alternate endings that were cut or whatever. And most of them were really stupid, but the one that scared the shit out of me. I, so I scare at everything. Like every movie is so scary to me. Um, <laughs> so I am the opposite of you guys. Um, but there was apparently a scene at the end of The Shining when she's in the hospital and then they go, they come and tell her, like the police come and tell her that they couldn't find his body. And I was like, oh, my God. And they had some scenes of it. So they must have found it, but it hasn't been. No, there's just production stills. There, there's, the, oh, the footage, okay. everyone thinks Kubrick destroyed all the right, footage. Right, that that's he it. In yeah. The but mm. even in the stills, it just looks so scary. And I just feel like I could, I've seen that movie a couple times. Like, I could imagine it really <laughs> well. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, that would be so scary. You never know when he's going to pop back up. <laughs> um, but for my, for my answer for this, um, I... My scariest movie and the thing that scared me the most is Hereditary, um, which, yeah, is, oh, my God. Like, I, we saw it in theaters, I think the weekend it came out or something, and I have never been so scared ever in my life before. I was, like, thought I was going to cry. <laughs> I almost yeah. had to leave the theater at one point because I was just, like, I'm going to have a heart attack right now. And, like, you know, usually when you see a scary movie, even in theaters where everything's, like, bigger and louder and more intense and stuff, uh -huh. like, I don't know. It's, like, there's a scary scene and then it passes or, like, you know, you kind of know. Like, I feel like most scary movies tend to be pretty predictable. This movie, I feel like, hit – I checked every box for me of like I'm terrified of like scary like religion possession things stuff with creepy children <laughs> being alone out in the woods like it was just like everything and then especially towards the end when shit is just going nuts and Tony Collette's character is like crawling on the attic <laughs> ceiling and stuff and does her head spin around there I think I've just like blocked it out because it was so scary um but I just like Oh my, I'm like sweating talking about it right now because it was just so. It's a very scary movie. It's so scary. I've watched scary it at movie. home. We watched it at home once and it wasn't as bad. So I definitely think like being in a movie theater in the dark with a bunch of people, plus like I'd already seen it once. I mean, it was still really scary, but it wasn't like I didn't feel like I needed to like turn it off and lay down for a while. Yeah, there's definitely a handful of movies that we've gone to where I have to like pull my hand away from her because she's squeezing it so hard. Uh, and I, I don't remember specifically that that was one of those, but it had to be. It had to I'm be. sure. Yeah. And then, well, we also recently watched a TV show, but we watched The Haunting of Hill House, um, which I guess, no, we watched The Haunting of Bly Manor, but The Haunting of Hill House came before that. 
I haven't seen Hill House because my sister told me that it's even scarier than Bly Manor. And it got like cheesy and dumb as it went on. But the first like two or three episodes, I was like, I can't sleep. Like I was <laughs> so scared. And like same thing, Alicia. It was like, I need to check my house. I don't know like what's in here. <laughs> um, so that was also I wouldn't put it in like top 10 or anything. But it's just like a recent, very terrifying thing that I watched. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Laura, I had a really hard time with this question because I, you know, I was thinking about all the different periods of my life where films sat with me and freaked me out, you know, like when you're young and watership down, just, you know, ruined everything (laughs) for you. And then, Mm. you know, or the last unicorn and how dark those films were, but, you know, and I was thinking maybe the eighties and the whole Brian De Palma stuff, because I don't really gravitate to straight horror films or like thrillers, but what I truth because it was the question is your favorite movie that scared you i i chose under the skin um it's a 2013 science fiction film by jonathan glazer um based on a novel by michael faber um or faber however you say it we read one of his books in our book club alicia and steven the book of strange new things um not this was a different book but i thought that movie was very it was beautifully shot unsettling in a way that stayed with me far too long after I saw it. I thought it was just incredibly creepy and smart. And um, it just, that's my, I I don't even have the words really. It's if you haven't seen it, you should really watch it. Scarlett Johansson does an incredible job. So before Mia and I met, that was one of the weirdest date movies I went on. Like, so with some like person I barely knew, we went on, that wow. was a date we went on. And that movie is so weird to go on a date to. <laughs> I bet. Um, since you're married now, we won't ask how the date went. But um... <laughs> <laughs> when I was thinking about answers for this and like thinking about like scary movies and, you know, whatever, trying to think of like scenes that would scare me, I was like, wow, though what is scarier than like what we've been living through for the past year? Like this mysterious (laughs) global pandemic, government insurrection, like mass death, like I just, you know, everything, uh, wildfires, like the list goes on, you know? And I was just like, shit, when the movie about now comes out, like (laughs) that's going to be the scariest one. (laughs) These are scary times for sure. Um, I was just going to add that, um, however, if you, you do want to scare me for some reason all you have to do is put a ventriloquist on me somewhere in my line of vision and i'm out i'm done i i you'll have to like drive me home because i'll i'll be i'll be searching for we'll remember that a yeah. gun to shoot it with or, or i'll be ready for like the loop i just can't take ventriloquist dummies can't yeah. take it there's a late 70s early 80s movie called magic i think and there's a ventriloquist dummy or like that's in the ads. And when I was a kid, I couldn't watch TV because that ad would just show up and I would freak out. Like it was very <laughs> scary. And I watched it again, like recently. And I remember the time when I was a kid, I'm like, why am I watching this? I'm still scared of it. But... I feel like there was an, are you afraid of the dark with a ventriloquist something in oh, it? I don't know. Gosh. Do you, Do you know, know that Candace Bergen's dad was a very famous ventriloquist mm-hmm. and that's that right. he yes. would, the, the the dummy had a bigger, more prominent bedroom, and that I mean, there's this whole, there's all these different. It's just wait, whose father? Candace I mean, Bergen. Oh, okay. And then oh. there were some moments where he would 
he would enact as if he was talking, they were both dummies and she'd have to <laughs> go along with the conversation that he. No, no, yeah, no. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> and there's some really creepy stories about that. But That's terrifying. I'm only scratching that, the, the surface. And that dummy's name was Murphy Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Corky. How about we share some of the uh, films that, that people told us about on Facebook? I really liked so, the reactions that we got. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I did too. Um, so Becky said that the steamroller scene in Who Framed Roger Rabbit still gives her the willies. And I would add to that the, the scene where they dip the shoe. They dip. Early on. That was yeah. dark. That, that one, is, yeah. yeah. It's mm-hmm. so, it's it's like putting a puppy down or something. It's yeah, that's crazy. That was tough. Um, that movie. Yeah, I mean, it was so. Yeah, yeah, it was. I'm. We rewatched that recently. I don't think it's a kids movie. It's not honestly. A movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bob it's kind of crazy that it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Bob then Hoskins. Teresa said Labyrinth was terrifying, um, which I know I saw that movie, but I can't remember it. It was so long ago. Labyrinth I, is I a like a movie that I don't remember either. I've seen it yeah. multiple times, and there's there's only one line I remember, and it's that last line of the film. Which is you have no power over me. <laughs> My will is as strong as yours. I'm scared. <laughs> um, Abby said that I guess it's the scene between Bilbo Baggins and uh, what's his face Gollum. Yeah, well, yeah. I think he gets. No, it's with Bilbo I with don't remember. Um, Frodo. Frodo, does he, yeah. And oh, they're trying to stop the ring. Get- the ring is possessed yeah. him because okay. it's like eventually you turn into a golem, yeah. right? It's just so the he ring. has this one moment of really, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's but like a flash, to... but it's so scary. Yeah, yeah, but she shared a still from it, and it did look terrifying. It did, yeah. yeah. To me, it looked yeah. a lot like Pee Wee Herman's um, when the truck driver. Oh, yes. oh large march, march, large march. Uh, they looked very similar in the prosthetics. Mm, yes. Yeah, because you completely don't expect it. Because I remember that scene in the movie, and I remember freaking out when I saw it too. Because he turns around and he's suddenly like, "I want the ring again," and he just like goes crazy. Yeah, I say I don't remember it. I've blocked all of Lord of the Rings from my really memory. Yes, really? I've only seen them all once, but I really like. Oh, them. I watched them whenever, like when Trump won, I couldn't move and I wasn't verbal, and the only thing that made sense was just watching the lord of the rings, just, lord of the rings. <laughs> it is good and evil is evil and you just kind of things make sense in the shire and it you know, <laughs> I, just, I slowly eight hours later i was okay i've never seen any of the lord of the rings films what? at all no wow not for me i tried to watch one on an airplane once and i did not make it five minutes before i just fell asleep <laughs> I just, they, ha- I have no interest in them at all. I'm not, I have, I'm not saying they're bad. No, I just I never, that, yeah. I just have no interest in them, yeah. but I, I like other fantasy. Like, you know, I like, I watched and read all the game of Thrones books and the show and all of Harry Potter. And I, I grew up reading Chronicles of Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia and all that. I just never mm-hmm. got into the Lord of the Rings. We should so do a plain podcast of like, the movie, the most embarrassing movies we've watched and enjoyed. <laughs> on the airplane, oh, oh, or just movies that Big are Mama's like, house we... too. <laughs> when you were I watched about... that, that casino movie with Amy Poehler and Will Ferrell. I watched that on an airplane one time. Oh, God. Oh, were they I was a little bit like a casino. Which one? Where they turned their house into a casino? Yes. Yeah. I don't know that movie. 
It, I think it came and went real fast. <laughs> it was yeah, like, it it was like three months of marketing, then you'd barely know it was out. <laughs> okay. It was, just it was one better of than I was expecting. I was like, oh, maybe I'll fall asleep during this, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> I think they make movies sometimes specifically for airplanes. Like they yes. just know it's just going to be on. An airplane. I'm into it. Yeah, most most Melissa McCarthy movies I think are made for airplanes. Yeah, and I, we are the like better spy. for them. <laughs> our, <laughs> our travel, yeah. She spy makes some trash is, movies. To me, is genius. A spy is good. I, I'm heat. not a huge fan of Spy, but I understand that one is better than other ones she's made, like uh, Identity Theft or whatever it's called. Mm. With yeah. is, I watched yeah. that on a plane. Well, there's I think I did watch that on a plane too. Yeah, it, those films are really uneven. They they meander yeah. and they they don't have quite the the ending that you're set up to get, and so it's almost sort of like Magnificent Ambersons. There you go. To bring it full circle, <laughs> I think yeah. if we just Fools. tacked on forty five minutes of decay and you know. to, to Identity Thief, yeah, I think then we would yeah, have yeah. a real genius film on our hands. Maybe, maybe it couldn't get worse. Um, I'm definitely down to do a spinoff podcast, though, that just talks about movies on planes, because I feel like I've like so many movies that I watch are on planes. And I feel like there's like certain movies that like I would just never watch. But I'm like, oh, I know mm-hmm. they're in like Delta's selection and mm-hmm. I can't wait. Or like I, I hardly ever rewatch movies. And but I'll like rewatch something on a plane. I don't know. I just feel like this whole like lane of my movie watching life has been cut off with not mm. traveling it anymore. feel a bit stunted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I watched that. Magnificent Ambersons twice and for as much oh, as wow. I just liked it. Oh, wow. I just really, um, I really wanted to try and wrap my head around it because I had such a visceral negative reaction to it. Mm. I respect that. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we have two more answers to, to our bonus question. So Andrea said that as a kid, the Skeksis Emperor dying in bed, and this is from The Dark Crystal. Yep. Uh, was what scared her and his face mm-hmm. melting apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a scary yeah. movie for a And then as an too. adult, the basement night vision scene in Silence of the Lambs. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'll vouch for both of those. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I don't remember much about The Dark Crystal, but I remember being kind of scared by it as a kid. I couldn't watch it. It was too scary for me. It was me. too scary for me. <laughs> I, I just said that. no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I think Max had an interesting answer that went a different oh. direction. Amour. So and it, I don't know who has seen that movie, but sure, it's fucking scary. What is the plot? It, Have I seen it? It's about a... I didn't see it with you. Okay, then I didn't um, see it. It's another date that didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Yeah, the way yeah. he said that. I didn't see it. It is, actually. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway... Um, yeah, it's, it's about it's about a woman dying um, terrifying. of old age and dementia, basically. Gross and terrifying. Right? Yeah, and, and her husband Aww. is like her, becoming her t- caretaker. And any, any other quick ones anybody wants to throw out or should we go ahead and wrap things up? I can share another quick one because okay. everything scares me. So this is an easy topic. Um, also, the mov- before I saw Hereditary, the scariest movie to me was The Ring, um, which like after I saw that, I couldn't sleep alone in my room for like a week probably and I was like in high school so it was really embarrassing I just remember when I saw it it was Halloween and then my friend came over and spent the night at my house and I literally she like pulled up in front of my house in her car and there was some bushes on the side and I'd had to get out into the bushes and I was like no I wouldn't like I was like Samara's in those bushes right there (laughs) I crawled out of her car 
And then because she was my friend and was like staying at my house, so like she was sleeping in the bed and I was sleeping on like an air mattress on the floor. And I was just like terrified that Samara was going to crawl out from under the bed and kill me. And it just scared the living daylights out of me. Like even now when I think about her in that closet in like the first five minutes of the movie, it just... When it comes to scary films, I feel like an underrated movie that I saw is called The Invitation from 2015 that really stuck with me. Um, it's, I don't really see it on a lot of lists or anything, but it, it really scared me and, and stayed with me if you guys ever come across it. Um, I also, it's a movie that was universally panned and there's a lot wrong with it, but Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me um, and just the, the series Twin Peaks is great, but that movie, the first time I saw it, really, really got under my skin and scared me. David Lynch does that sort of like menacing, creepy mm-hmm. thing so, so well, and that that does really get me. He he scares me a lot. His films scare me. Um, but but it's not a great movie, but it did scare me, and I did sort of enjoy the experience of that. <laughs> This was a good question, though. I really enjoyed thinking about Mm -hmm. it, Stephen. So our next episode is Laura's pick. So Laura, do you want to remind us what that will be? Well, it's Citizen Kane. I'm really looking forward to watching it, and I really hope that the ghost of Orson Welles doesn't haunt me because I was so just anti-Magnificent Ambersons. And, uh, of course, it was released in 1941, Mm -hmm. and it is available to watch with an HBO Max or a TCM subscription. You can also rent it on Amazon, Google, YouTube, and plenty of other places online. Or, you know, go buy it somewhere physically. (laughs) So, like we said before, the Stereoactive Movie Club isn't supposed to be just the five of us chatting. We want it to be an open discussion for people who want to be included. So please do watch Citizen Kane and share your thoughts. You can do that by joining our Facebook group, at facebook.com slash groups slash Stereoactive Movie Club, or you can email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com, or you can send us a voice message on our show page at anchor.fm slash stereoactivemovieclub. Thank you, everybody. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. Stereoactive Media.